John chapter 14, verses 5 to 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be uh, in John 14 this morning, as Tosi just read. So if you've got that open in front of you or on your phone or something, do keep that there. Um, and let's pray, shall we, as we, uh, as we come to God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be at work through your Holy Spirit uh, to change us and to apply your word to our heart uh, and to use it for your glory. Lord, we pray that as we see your word, we might see Christ, and as we see Christ, we might see the Father, and that that might be all for the good of your name. We pray that you would be at work in all of us as we hear, and we pray that you would be at work through my words as I speak, knowing that I cannot preach wisely in my own strength, so that all of this might be for the good of your name. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, so I don't know whether you've been uh, watching the news or looking at the papers this week, but there all of a sudden has been a bit of a buzz. They're starting to have news reports about the coronation, which is in a couple of months. They're starting to do their preparatory work, and they're doing all sorts of things. I think the thing that raised my eyebrow the most is that apparently they have been sending out save-the-date cards to people. I don't know whether any of you have had one, maybe? Uh, If you're the sort of person that's likely to go to a coronation, are you booking other things? Like, is that to avoid the kind of embarrassing thing where you get invited to the coronation, but you've already got cinema tickets, you don't know what to do? But every aspect of the ceremony 
is, is being discussed in fine detail. Who's going? Where will they sit? How many people can they get in? What will be said? And that's because it is a moment of huge significance for the, for the nation. It's a huge occasion in the world. It's rich in its symbolism. And among other things, Charles will, in, will be given the title Defender of the Faith. Or at least, I think he will. A few years ago, Prince Charles, as he was then, um, suggested that actually he might prefer to be Defender of Faiths. Clearly, I think he felt a bit uncomfortable in a pluralistic society about the idea of being the defender of one faith. He, I guess, wanted to be a little bit more inclusive. I think he's rode back a bit on that now, but it does prompt a good question. Is it right to hold to the claim of just one faith? Or are all faiths valid in some way? Are there many roads to God? Are these all just paths up a mountain? Or is maybe being a good atheist a wise choice in life? What we see this morning, um, and I hope you saw as uh, Toyoti was reading, is that the Bible has a clear answer to that question. Jesus is unique. There is only one route to God, one route to the Father, one hope. As Christians, we stand for an exclusive truth in a pluralistic world. And that truth is the underpinning of our faith. And it brings with it a responsibility to share the good news of the one truth. So it is important that we understand why that has to be exclusive. And of course it is important that we understand why it is true. And so this morning as we work through these just nine verses in John 14... We're going to see three things. Firstly, Jesus is the way, the only way. We see that in verses 5 and 6. Secondly, Jesus is one with the Father. That's verses 7 to 11. And then thirdly, Jesus is at work. That's verses 11 to 14. So we start in um, verse 5. We're obviously picking up in the middle of a conversation Um, And it's Thomas that picks up the reins at this point of the dialogue with Jesus. Uh, If you remember back a couple of weeks when we last looked at this, um, Jesus has just been telling them that he will prepare a place for them in heaven. Uh, And he said to them that last line in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. But um, Thomas is confused. In fact, Thomas is not even clear on where Jesus is going, never mind the way. So he says to him, Lord, if I, if I don't know where you're going, how can I possibly know the way? Now, of course, he's missed the point, because when Jesus says uh, that they know the way, he means that they know him. He's going to the cross. He's going to the Father, and he's going to prepare a place for them. And he's coming back to get them. So, of course, they know the way. But in his misunderstanding, Thomas gives Jesus the opportunity to unpack that much more deeply. And Jesus' reply to him straight away, in one sense, is very straightforward. Thomas says, Lord, I don't know the way. And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. It's through Jesus that people can come to eternal life with the Father. At that level, it's very simple. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. Jesus expands on his answer, and he says he is the way and the truth, and the life. 
an incredibly famous thing that Jesus said. It's probably one of the four or five things that I think many, many people in this country would still be able to tell you that Jesus had said. And what he does is he adds to his explanation about being the way two further truths about himself, which of course tell us more about him, but which also reinforce what he is saying about being the way. And there, I guess, something of an explanation of why he is the way. To understand the truth about, about him, they need to understand more about who he is and what he's doing. And so we're going to look at those two things. And the first of them is, of course, uh, that he is the truth. And what Jesus means when he says he is the truth really is that he is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. Jesus is the living, breathing, demonstrable evidence that God does what God says he will do. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yet in Christ. The promises of the Old Testament of a Messiah who will come to save his people are fulfilled in Christ. The promise of a king who will reign forever, fulfilled in Christ. The promise of a God who will make everything new, fulfilled in Christ. The promise of a God who will conquer death, who will forgive sin, who will build a kingdom, fulfilled in Christ. God has spoken, and Jesus is the evidence that what he said was true. I uh, used to have a boss at the beginning of my career who ranked everyone in their annual reviews. You know, and you have to go through and fill out the form. Top of the list on his um, review forms was the question, do you, do you do what you say you will do? It's sort of a business nostrum that gets thrown around a lot. It's really important, and it was vital for this boss. Do you do what you say you're going to do? Uniquely in history, Jesus has done everything he said he was going to do without fail. Jesus has fulfilled everything that God has promised without fail. He is the truth, and so the disciples can trust him, and so can we. And because he's the only one who's done that, That means he is the truth. There is no one else who can fulfill all the promises of God. There's only Jesus, exclusively Jesus. And because he's the truth, because he fulfills God's promise, that means that he can offer life. And we need that life. You know the um, Benjamin Franklin quote, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Cheery bloke. Our lives are finite. I've heard Greg say in this pulpit before, there is currently in this country a one-in-one death rate. You might be able to earn a lot of money. You might have very successful relationships. You might live in a nice house. You might have a great job. You might have a lovely lifestyle. But every single one of us will die unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. Every single one. No one in all of history has been able to do anything about that except Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the death, raised from the dead by the Father and ascended into heaven and is enthroned there now, alive and reigning. Death is defeated. We have a sure and certain hope of eternal life beyond the grave because. Jesus himself was raised from death. 
And Jesus has already pointed this out to the disciples in chapter 10. He said there, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that is why Jesus here says that he is the life. If you trust him, your death will be just the beginning. If I can quote C.S. Lewis, the term will be over and the holidays will have begun. There is a glorious eternity, a life full forever awaiting anybody that trusts in Christ. And Jesus is the truth and the life. And those two things are tied together. The obedient son shows the truth of the promises of the father and brings eternal life. Following him, therefore, is the only way. So in saying that he's the way and the truth and the life, Jesus is pointing to the fulfillment of scripture and pointing out to the way that he holds out God's word in bodily form. He points out that he is the embodiment of truth. He points out that he has conquered death. He points out that he offers eternal life. And all of that is what makes him the way. So as we read this, this is written by John. John is a signpost. When Paul goes out and takes the gospel to the Gentiles, he's a signpost. When the disciples go out and teach what Jesus is telling them, they're signposts. Isaiah, signpost. Any preacher, signpost. Any one of us, when we talk to one of our friends about Jesus, signpost. Jesus is not a signpost, Jesus is the way. Jesus is unique. Jesus is the one. And that is why exclusivity matters. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one else who wrote and fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. There's no one else who's risen from the grave. Jesus is the one. And it's incredibly important, and we must feel the weight of what he then says. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an absolutely unambiguous statement. It is straightforward. Jesus is the only way because he's the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So no other religion's claim can hold water. The postmodern idea that maybe we can all have our own truth or that truth is relative in some way in itself cannot be true. There's only one truth and it's Jesus. Objectively, things are either true or they're not. What Jesus says is true and what uh, contradicts Jesus is not. So relativism, I can't even say it, but it's ruled out. Pluralism is ruled out. There's only one way to God. There are false promises otherwise. There's a truth and there are untruths. There are not many paths up the mountain. There is only Jesus. So Jesus is the way. That's his first important thing to say to the disciples. But the way to what? That's the other half of Thomas's question, isn't it? Well, he's the way to the Father. What Jesus is offering is the way to God. And next, Jesus starts to explain to the disciples what that means and what his relationship is with the Father. And as before, if we look in verse 7, he starts with a, a relatively uncomplicated statement. He says, if you knew me, you'd know the Father. And you do know me, so from now on you know the Father. And at a surface level, that is easy enough to understand. See the Son, see the Father. He's the way. 
But it, now it's Philip's turn to take up the uh, conversation, and, and he also doesn't really get it. He just wants to cut to the chase. He says, look, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be fine. And this time, that earns him a rebuke. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after all this time, haven't you worked it out? But again, the misunderstanding gives Jesus the opportunity to explain and give us more detail, a fuller insight into how he and the Father relate to one another. And what we see is amazing. There's a sort of four-step unfolding as you go through verses 9, 10, and 11. So first of all, anyone who sees Jesus sees the Father. And then Jesus is in the Father And the Father is in Jesus. Thirdly, the words that Jesus speaks are not on his own authority, but by implication on the authority of the Father. And fourthly, the works that Jesus is doing are actually the Father working in him. So to put it mildly, this is more than your average father-son relationship. What does it mean? that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father? What does it mean that the Father acts through the Son or that seeing the Son means we're seeing the Father? It means that they are one. And Jesus, again, in chapter 10, has already told the disciples that. Verse 30 says, I am the Father, are one. And what Jesus is talking about here, of course, is the fact that God is Trinity. Although they are separate persons, Jesus is obedient to the Father and the Father sent the Son. They are nonetheless one. They are God. There is one God and the fullness of God dwells in each person of the Godhead. So when the disciples look at Jesus, they see the Father because they see God. And when Jesus acts, it's the Father acting in him Because God is at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit uh, later on in this chapter. We'll come to that. So when they think about the miraculous works that Jesus has done, that is the Father working through Jesus because these are the acts of God. Willed by the Father, done by the Son. Two persons of the Trinity Fulfilling different roles, but one God at work in the world. It is mind-blowing. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity has a particular role, but is fully God. Three persons, one God. So Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. And the fullness of God dwells in Jesus as he stands among the disciples. Jesus is at once God incarnate, God the Son, and also the fullness of God. I think we can forgive Philip for missing the point of that the first time around. The Trinity is a mystery. And we struggle to grasp it because we are limited and it's beyond our full comprehension. But it is worth taking the time to reflect on it. It shows us more of who God is. It allows us to know him more deeply. And Jesus is revealing it here 
to the disciples so that they understand and comprehend and love God more. Don't dodge round it because it's difficult to grasp. Pray and reflect on what God is revealing of himself to us in these verses. Now, for the disciples, obviously that means that as they talk to him, they've got before them the creator God of the Bible. He isn't someone lesser sent by God. He is God made flesh. See him, see God. The father isn't remote and being held at arm's length. He's in Jesus and Jesus is in him. And that's why Jesus is the way to the father. That's why there isn't another way, because he is the one God at work. But there's an obvious question for us, because the disciples are being taught live and in person by Jesus. So this applies to them very directly. When they literally see Jesus, they see the Father. That's great, but what about us? We can't see Jesus in that sense. He's ascended into heaven. He's not here in physical form for us to look at. So how do we see the Father? Well, if the disciples saw Jesus in human form, to us, Jesus reveals himself in his word. Look at the beginning of uh, verse 11. Believe me when I say. Or verse 10. The words I say to you are the Father living in me who is doing his work. Or if you know the end of John's gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see Jesus in the word because he is the word. He's the truth, as we saw earlier. He's the word of God right from the beginning of John. When I read this passage on my phone, a big chunk of it is highlighted in red because uh, the app highlights the words that Jesus speaks. But really, that's quite misleading. Really, the whole Bible should be in red if that's what you're going to do. Because the whole Bible is the word of God. The whole Bible is breathed out by God as the words of Christ to the church so that we might see him there. We don't see him face to face yet. But we do see him through his own revelation of himself in his word. And that's why we come and hear it every week. That's why we study it. That's why we read it regularly. That's why we teach it to our children. Here is Jesus. When you see Jesus in his word, you see the Father. You can know God, and by believing, you may have life. And if that's not enough, says Jesus, then believe on the basis of the works themselves. Now, to the disciples in the room, again, Jesus is reminding them of the miracles that they've witnessed. The water turned into wine, the healing of the sick and the blind, the raising of Lazarus, the walking on water. Think of those things and believe. But what Jesus says next is remarkable because what we see in it from verse 11 is that Jesus is still at work. If we look at verses 11 to 14... Jesus makes two, on the surface, quite startling statements, I think. Firstly, he says, whoever believes in him will do even greater things than he did. And secondly, whatever we ask for in his name, he will do. 
What does that mean? I think, first of all, we should probably be clear on what it doesn't mean. In uh, lockdown, we watched the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I'm not apologizing for that. It was great. And uh, we, uh, we used to debate which superhero power would you pick for yourself if you could have the choice. Lockdown was very boring. Um, and, there, you know, there's quite a debate. Emily always makes a strong case for invisibility because I think she just wants to be left alone. Um, but for me, there's only one sensible answer. I, I would choose to fly. I think it's a no-brainer. So is verse 13 saying that if I ask in Jesus' name for the ability to fly, I can head up into the balcony and set off? No, stay in your seats. It obviously does not mean that. It obviously does not mean that we can ask for whatever comes into our head and Jesus will deliver. Nor is it true, for that matter, that the disciples or anybody else since have done more impressive miracles than Jesus when he was on earth. The meaning of these verses hangs on three phases that I haven't read out yet. Verse 12, they will do even greater things than these because Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus will no longer be bound by a human body and he will be able to work through his followers to a huge extent. Jesus will do whatever they ask in his name and he'll do that so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. What these verses promise is that when God's people pray to him in accordance with his will, in his name, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, he will act in an extraordinary way for the glory of the Father. What he's talking about is the growth of the kingdom. When Jesus died a few chapters on uh, in John, there were maybe 50 believers According to a bit of internet research I did this week, there are currently 2.2 billion people alive in the world who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. What is greater than saving the disciples and a a few other people? Well, saving people by the hundreds of millions. What is greater than bringing Philip and Thomas and John and Peter and Mary into the kingdom? Building a kingdom of billions of people from every country on earth across the entire span of history. When we pray in Jesus' name, he will act in even greater ways than he did on earth to bring glory to the Father. So when we ask Jesus to do our work, uh, his work in us, he does it. When you share the gospel, Jesus is at work. When we ask him to glorify the Father... He will. The growth of the kingdom glorifies the Father and is the work of the Son. And if you want to know how that happens, we'll come back in about three weeks, I think it is, in the evening, and we'll look at that from verse 15. The Holy Spirit will be at work in the world. Or, I mean, you could just read ahead. That would work. Remember that Jesus here is teaching the disciples and telling them what they need to know as he is sending them out into the world to do his work after he has risen and ascended. He's the way, but that's not just good news for them. It's a spur to go out into the world and to point people to the way. 
to be the signpost. And Jesus is encouraging them here. Jesus is telling them that the task that he's sending them out to do, the task that he's sending us out to do, will be successful. Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus will work his will through the church in the world for the glory of the Father. So as we draw to a close, there are two big applications for us here. Firstly, we must be clear that Jesus has an absolutely exclusive claim to truth. Because Jesus is God. And for anybody here this morning who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, that is a challenge, I think. Jesus demands to be taken seriously. Jesus will not let you leave here thinking that he is one of a number of good options. You cannot be a neutral observer. Or think that Jesus is, you know, somebody who might fit into your lifestyle choice. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And as you see him here in his word, you're seeing God. So turn to him and accept the path that he holds out to the Father. In Jesus' redemption and forgiveness and a place in the kingdom of God, and we would love to talk to you about that. Catch me at the end or talk to Greg. For those of us who are Christians, I think it's a good reminder that exclusivity matters. In a pluralistic world, it does matter that we hold on to Jesus' exclusive truth. Salvation is found only in Jesus, so we cannot be tempted by other claims or other religions or the temptation internally to be good and try and earn it for ourselves. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, so stand firm. And we're not to bludgeon people with that truth. We're not to impose morality on them. They don't need rules. They need Jesus. And so our second great task here is evangelism. The kingdom grows as people share the gospel. And as the spirit works, and as we show Christ to people. There are people who know Jesus, the way, and there are people who don't. There's no other option. Jesus is the only good news for a needy and a hopeless world. And Jesus has sent his church into that world to show them the way. That's our job. We hold out the way, the truth, and the life in love. And we must pray as well for the growth of the kingdom because that is explicitly what Jesus is commanding us to do in verse 14. Do we pray for gospel growth? Do we pray individually for people around us? Are we praying for the growth of the kingdom around the world? Are we praying for our mission partners? Tomas is coming this afternoon. Are we praying for the word as it's preached across this country and across the world every Sunday morning. That is what Jesus is saying we should do. You may ask for anything in his name and he will do it. So let's be asking. Let's be asking for revival. Let's be asking for people to be saved in St. Albans. Let's be asking for the gospel to be at work in countries where Christians are currently oppressed. Let's be asking for the gospel to go into all the corners of the world. And as we do that, let's believe that what Jesus says is true. He is at work. He will answer that prayer when we ask it in his name. There are over 2 billion believers and counting 
But there are many, many more who still need to know Christ. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. We thank you that when we ask in his name, you will work. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is at work among us and in the world, bringing the truth of Christ into people's hearts and bringing them into your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm in the truth. We pray that we might rejoice uh, in Jesus' absolute claim to truth. And we pray that we would hold it out faithfully. We pray that we would be loving and gentle and point unfailingly to Jesus so that you might be glorified. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing, um, You're the Word of God the Father, uh, which just has, uh, it's a tremendous truth for us to be reminding one another of, that Jesus is the Word, Jesus is at work, and his cry of love rings out across the lands. Let's stand to sing.